morning, everyone. I'd uh, like to begin this morning um, by reading from Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to be beginning in verse 24. I'm going to read on down through uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. This is the word of the true and living God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you uh, that you've given us this revelation of yourself. Father, I thank you that you've invited us to seek you in it, Lord, and that you uh, are there for us to find, Father. I pray this morning that your word will go forth clearly, uh, Father, that I preach it in a way that is helpful to your people. Lord, I pray that you would keep me from speaking anything false, Father. Um, and that Christ would be magnified in all that's spoken here this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so we're picking back up in our study of Colossians this morning. And we'll be uh, in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. But I thought uh, that before we kind of jump back into our, our exposition, Taking into consideration uh, that we've departed from the book for the last month to preach on the the first advent of our Lord, and also that we have some folks here uh, who weren't with us through our first rotation in the series, it might be helpful for us to do just a little a little bit by way of review of where we've been so far, uh, just to kind of ease us back into it. So the book of Colossians is a letter, right? It's an epistle. It's a letter written by Paul to the church in a city located within what we know today as the nation of Turkey, also known as Asia Minor. And the city was called Colossae. And the church in Colossae was planted by a man named Epaphras. And we know this because of Colossians uh, 1, verses 6 and 7, where Paul writes to the Colossians that the gospel has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So we see that the Colossian believers had heard and believed the gospel through the teaching of uh, Epaphras, who was a Colossian himself. He was from Colossae. So Epaphras was probably converted uh, through Paul's preaching during one of his early missionary journeys possibly in Ephesus. And then uh, he went back to his hometown of Colossae to preach the gospel to the people there, and he founded the Colossian church. And we can gather also from uh, the book of Colossians that at the time of his writing, 
At the time of Paul's writing, Paul had never visited the church there. He was writing uh, mostly to people that he'd never met. And they, they would have heard of him. Uh, of course, they would have heard of Paul. Certainly, Epaphras would have uh, spoken to them of, of, of the great missionary and gospel minister uh, under whose preaching he'd been converted. And there were other believers in the city who would have known Paul personally as well. We can tell this from some of his other writings. Uh, but Paul himself had never visited Colossae in his evangelistic journeys. So he, he begins the book with a customary greeting, uh, commending himself to them as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1 of chapter 1. And he goes on in verses 3 through 8 to express his thankfulness to God for what he had heard about them from Epaphras and others. So Paul had heard of their faith and faithfulness and their love for all the saints, but he hadn't personally witnessed it. Right? So Paul's letter to the, to the Colossians is his attempt to encourage them and to edify them in writing uh, because he couldn't be there to do it in person. And as we'll see uh, throughout our continued study of the book, probably the primary reason that Paul is writing to the Colossians is to guard them against some false teaching that had begun to worm its way into the Colossian church. So it seems that, that Epaphras, in addition to informing Paul of the faithfulness of the Colossian believers, he had also told him that the church in Colossae was being, uh, being threatened by this false teaching. And Paul, in his apostolic authority, wrote this letter to warn against and to refute uh, this heresy. And he does this throughout this book by reminding them of the truth and expounding upon it. And that's what he begins to do in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, this is a, a, a proclamation of what might be the highest of high Christology in all of Scripture. Right? Christology is the study or, or the knowledge of the nature, person, and work of Jesus Christ. And these verses, which Jason preached on several weeks ago, are perhaps the most well-known and glorious proclamation of the great truths uh, about the eternal deity and supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, um, the, the, the sufficiency of his work in reconciling believers to God. To reconcile means to make peace, right? Christ came to make peace between God and men. So Paul is reminding the Colossians of these truths in order to refute the false notions of who Christ is that were being taught by the false teachers who were influencing the Colossian church. And I, we'll see more of this, as I said, as we uh, proceed throughout the book. Um, but this section of high Christology in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is also bookended by Paul with uh, great gospel truths in verses 13 and 14 and on the other side of the passage in verses 21 through 23. So Paul surrounds this great section concerning the true nature and work of Jesus Christ with the truth that Christ came to rescue the enemies of God from the kingdom of darkness. So we see that in verses 13 and 14 and 21 and 23. And he came to reconcile them by God to God by cleansing them of their sin through his sacrificial work on the cross. All right, so all of this, this is Paul's way of refuting false teaching. He simply reminds his readers of the truth, right, which they had learned from the faithful Epaphras, the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do. And he directs them to stand firm in this truth. In uh, chapter 1, verse 23, so Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Christ has reconciled you to God if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul is telling them, he's saying, hold fast to the truth as it was first delivered to you. As it was first delivered to you. Don't sway from that. Don't, let, don't be led astray by anything that contradicts that truth as you first heard it. And so uh, that's where Jason ended up. And, and it brings us up to speed, and this is where I want to pick up. And I want to begin with the last uh, bit there of uh, verse 23, where Paul says that he was made a minister of the gospel. 
He was made a minister of the gospel. He says here uh, that he was made, made a minister. He didn't choose it for himself. Uh, he didn't train for it and seek it out. Christ made him an apostle. Christ chose him and equipped him and used him to bring his gospel to the nations. In the first account of Paul's conversion in Acts uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, we read about how Paul, as he was on the road to Damascus to arrest and persecute the Christians there, uh, he was knocked to the ground and stricken with blindness by the Lord. And he was three days without sight. And while he stayed in the city of Damascus for those three days, the Lord sent a disciple named Ananias to go to Paul and lay hands on him and heal him so that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit and born again as a new creation in Christ. And Ananias uh, protested at first. He didn't want to go. He was afraid of Paul because Paul repu Paul's reputation as a persecutor of Christians preceded him. Right? But the Lord tells Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he says to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So the Greek word translated as instrument here is sometimes translated in other places in Scripture as property. As property. God says, I've chosen him to be my property. And the word can also be translated as vessel. He is my chosen vessel. So what is a vessel? A vessel. A vessel is an object that is used to hold or to carry something. Paul was chosen by God to carry his gospel, to carry it to the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And this is what Paul is, is reaffirming here in Colossians 1.23, that he was made a minister by God for the purpose of carrying his gospel to all of creation. Right? He's telling these Colossian believers, you need to listen to me. You need to believe this gospel as I present it. This is the true gospel and, 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 and not the false gospel that these false teachers among you are troubling you with. Paul was made a minister of the gospel by God. Right? And so now I'd like to talk just a bit about what it means to be a minister. A minister. What do you think of when you hear that term, when you hear the term minister? Where does your mind go? It's um, kind of sad uh, to, to say that in our modern church culture, the title of minister tends to be used and understood in a way that is actually completely opposed to its biblical meaning. And so many people, uh, both, both believers and unbelievers, when they hear the word minister today, they likely think of a pastor or a preacher. And they might also think of those who hold the title of minister as, as a person who, who holds some like lofty or elevated position within the church, like a minister is somehow a, uh, a superior kind of Christian. And neither one of these understandings is an accurate reflection of how the scriptures use the word. Right? So the Greek word translated minister in Colossians 1.23 is diakonos. Diakonos. And it's the word from which we get our English word deacon. As a matter of fact, there are several uh, places in Scripture where diakonos is actually translated as deacon. Right? When it, were, when it uh, is referring to that specific church office. But the word diakonos in first century Greek would have been understood by Paul's audience to mean servant. It's just a word that meant servant or one who serves. And if we think of the word serve, we can identify two separate but closely related meanings, right? To serve can mean to do someone's bidding, right? To obey them, to serve them. But it can also mean to present something to another person, right? Like to serve someone a meal. As I said, these things are different, but they're closely related. Uh, so what does this tell us when we apply it to the context of Colossians 1.23? when Paul says that he's been made a minister or a servant of the gospel. Uh, when, when we think it through, it would seem clear 
uh, that both of these definitions can accurately describe Paul's evangelistic work, right? What he was called to do. He serves others by preaching the gospel to them, and he serves the gospel to people, right? So I think both of these things play into what Paul means when he describes himself as a minister of the gospel. And there's also a sense in which Paul is a servant or a diakonos of Jesus Christ, right? And that he's, he's doing the bidding of his master, which is to preach the gospel to all of creation. So when we compare this biblical definition of the word minister that we've just heard to the way that modern people often think of the word, uh, hopefully we can recognize a little bit of the misunderstanding that can exist there. A minister is not some higher class or office within Christianity, but a minister is one appointed by God as a servant, a servant of both Christ and his fellow man. That's what it means to be a minister. So now, I'd like to ask you all, brothers and sisters, is there such a thing as a true Christian who is not called to be a minister, according to the biblical definition of the word? Right? Is there such a thing as a true believer who is not called to serve Christ and their fellow man? No. <laughs> Answer is no. There is no such animal. No such animal as a true Christian who is not called to ministry. Uh, to reinforce this, we can look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, or diakonia which is the same root as diakonos, to the building up of the body of Christ, equipping the saints for the work of service, for the work of ministry. So this says uh, that those people, the people to whom we, we moderns typically want to exclusively assign the title of minister, right, pastors and teachers, those ministries exist for the sole purpose of equipping the saints the saints, which is a term that the Bible uses to describe all believers, right? All believers are saints, and pastors and teachers exist to equip believers to do the work of ministry. That's it, brothers and sisters. We are all, all of us called to be ministers. Every one of us, not just Trey and Jason and I. And we can look again at the context of Colossians uh, 1.23 and see that Paul here, he is speaking about a specific type of ministry. There are different types of ministry and different ways that we serve uh, one another. But in um, verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul is talking about the ministry of the gospel, right? Serving the gospel. But I'd ask you again, I'd ask you again, brothers and sisters, what Christian is not called to minister the gospel? What Christian is not called to minister the gospel? If you're a born-again, blood-bought child of King Jesus, then he says of you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Believer, you are the light of the world. Every one of you. And it's your duty to act as a lampstand to shine the light of Jesus Christ in a world full of darkness. We've hidden the light for too long. But I, I have hidden the light too often and for too long. First, uh, first Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that we are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, his property, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The gospel, the gospel. We have been chosen as vessels to carry the truth of God to the nations, just as Paul was, just like Paul was. 
We've been chosen and adopted by God. We've been saved so that we might proclaim the excellencies of his holiness and grace to a lost world. To a lost world. That's why we're here. That's why we were chosen. All of us have been called to proclaim the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Every believer. Right now, I'm not saying that your gospel ministry needs to look exactly the way that Paul's looked. But not everyone is called to go into the synagogues and the marketplaces and preach the gospel to hostile crowds. Right? But some of you may be called to do just that. Not everyone is called to be an evangelist in that sense, but we are all, again, every believer is called to evangelize. Right? So there's a little distinction there between the office and the work. Um, the methods are going to differ. The methods are going to differ. For some, it's a call to preach in the open air outside the four walls of the church building. For some, it might be a call to, to just pass out gospel tracts in public places and to have conversations with strangers about Christ. For others, it's a call to share the hope of Christ with a lost friend or relative or co-worker. There, there are many ways to do it. A lot of different ways to do it. And for all of us who are parents and grandparents, it's a call to teach these wonderful uh, gospel truths to our children, right? And evangelize them. There, there are no exceptions there. No parent is exempt from that type of evangelism. To, to go back to the common misunderstanding that our modern church culture has when it comes to the title of minister, this is the real danger. Right, We've come to a place in our church culture where we think of church as a place where we need to take people, where we need to bring unbelievers in so the preacher can get them saved. Right, And, and we see ministers like Sunday school teachers and youth pastors as the ones who are responsible for teaching our children about Christ. Right, Many parents have delegated that responsibility away. The primary responsibility that we all have as parents, they've delegated it out to others. Leave it to the professionals, right? Isn't that the mindset that people have? To the professional ministers. This is so dangerous. This is so dangerous. This is the cause of so much of the weakness and, and faithlessness uh, among people in our churches and the reason that so many children have fallen away. Because we don't see ministry and we don't see church in the way that God intends for it to be seen. So let's look back again at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to read a little further this time. It says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Our ministry is to build one another up. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Not only are you called to gospel ministry, but every one of us as believers, we are gifted by God in a way that is meant to be used in service to the church for the purpose of building up those around you. Right? How are you serving? How are you ministering? This is church, brothers and sisters. It's not primarily a place for unbelievers to come in and get saved. Church is for believers. And it's not a body where two or three people minister and everyone else just sits back and is passively ministered to because only certain people are called to ministry. Right? Church is when believers gather together for the purpose of building one another up in love, unity, and knowledge. We all minister to one another. 
so that every member might grow to maturity in Christ and be equipped to go out, to go out and be the light of the world in our lives from day to day. That's why God gave us each other, right? That's why he made us a church. All right, now, uh, I realize I've departed a little bit from the context of Colossians 1, but I believe that that was a necessary word and, and one that our churches in general uh, badly need to hear and understand, and I couldn't resist. So, um, let's return to Paul, a minister of the gospel of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What a verse. Right? So, first off, I need to tell you that this is one of those verses on which Christians throughout the ages have, have differed on the, the true meaning intended by the author. When you go to the commentaries, you'll see that there are many differing interpretations of what Paul says here. Right? A lot of different ways that people look at it. So expositing this verse and any other like it is going to be a difficult task for any preacher. And it certainly has been for me. So um, in considering how best to do this, I decided to approach it in this way. Right? First, I'm going to talk about what it definitely doesn't mean. Uh, then I'm going to present two schools, two different schools of possible explanations or interpretations that have been offered for this verse over the years. Right? And then I'm going to press hard on a concept that is common to all of these possible explanations, a concept which I know to be true. Right? So whether any of these possible interpretations or understandings of this verse are exactly what Paul intended to say when he wrote this sentence, whether or not any of them are right, there is a solid biblical truth that sits at the core of all of them. And we're going to talk about that. So uh, let's read the verse again. So previously in verse 23, Paul explained that he had been made a minister of the gospel. He had been made a minister of the gospel. And now, now that I've been made a minister of the gospel, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So, uh, obviously, the difficult part of this verse, or I hope it's obvious, the difficult part is that Paul says that he is doing his share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Right? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? If we didn't know Paul, we might be tempted to accuse him of blasphemy for saying this, right? that there's something lacking in the affliction and suffering that Christ endured on the cross. You can see how if this verse is, is just taken in isolation, uh, how we could get the wrong idea, right? So uh, that's why first I want to talk about what this verse definitely does not mean. I just uh, spent a little bit of time in, in our review earlier emphasizing that Christ's work was sufficient, sufficient, and that Paul himself taught this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, right? That Jesus did all that was necessary so that those who place their faith in him might be reconciled to God. But his, his dying words on the cross, uh, to, to tell us die, it is finished. It's paid in full. The work of atonement was finished, done, complete. Paul knew this. Right? He teaches this over and over again in this very chapter and in all of his other writings. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. One act. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. One act of righteousness, one obedient servant. So Paul affirms these truths in multiple places and in multiple ways. Right? Uh, 
There's only one act of obedience and righteousness that saves us, and that's Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And nothing needs to be added to that, and nothing can be added to that. Christ's sufficient and uh, suffering and dying on the cross was sufficient to save all of his people. So, whatever Paul is saying in Colossians 1.24, it is not that he, that, that Paul is somehow adding something to Christ's suffering and sacrifice that's needed to complete the atonement for sin. Right? Paul knows better. To claim that would, would be heresy. It would be blasphemy. So whatever Paul is saying here, it isn't that. Right? We can know that with absolute certainty. So what is he saying then? What is he saying? Can we put Colossians 1.24 back up on the screen? All right, so now um, I want to discuss some of the uh, explanations that have been offered for this statement of Paul's by scholars and theologians and preachers over the years. And I'm going to do that by dividing these explanations into two main schools. All right, so the first school, um, and y'all bear with me through this, right? Uh, the first school is distinguished by the idea that Paul himself was set apart for suffering in a unique way, right? That Paul was called to be afflicted in a way that's meant to fill up a certain amount of suffering that was necessary to complete the reconciling work of Christ, right? And I know that was a lot. Let me explain. The idea is that uh, the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the sufferings that Christ would endure to make atonement for sin, particularly those in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, which are like the suffering servant passages, they were fulfilled partially by Christ on the cross. Right, The suffering that Christ endured on the cross was sufficient to make atonement for sin, but there was more suffering to be done in order to completely uh, fulfill the prophecies to fill up the measure of ordained sufferings and to actually complete the work of reconciliation by proclaiming it to the world, right? And Paul specifically was the apostle called to proclaim this reconciliation and to endure the suffering and to fill up the remainder of these sufferings in the process. Um, and there are se several different places that people who believe this view will go to present evidence, uh, and some of them are too complex uh, for us to get into this morning. But some of the biblical evidences they give are they, they want to compare the similarities uh, between many of Paul's sufferings and Christ's sufferings, right? They, they were both despised and rejected by men. They were both wounded and scarred in ways that marred their appearances. They were both afflicted and stricken by God. They were both scourged with whips. So this is seen as evidence that Paul is identified with Christ's suffering in a unique and prophetic way. And it's also noted that Paul seems to compare his ministry and work to Christ's ministry and work in several places in his writings, uh, with an example here that they give in this very chapter. In Colossians 1, verse 22, Paul writes uh, that Christ has now reconciled you in his, his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And then in verse 28, Paul writes that he, Paul, labors to present every man complete in Christ. And, and it's also pointed out that the reconciling work is being done by and through Christ in verses 20 and 22 of this chapter, but that Paul also says that he is taking part in the ministry of reconciliation. And that's in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verses 18 and 19. And we'll read that. It says, Now all these things, which are the things that he mentioned in the preceding verses, uh, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Right? So when it comes to the ministry of reconciliation, this view uh, wants to teach that only Paul, only Paul and not all believers, just Paul, has been given the ministry of reconciliation. And that Paul and Paul alone was called to proclaim the word of reconciliation and to act as an ambassador for Christ in this regard. Uh, G.K. Beale is a commentator I read who uh, presented this view. He seems to prefer this view. And he puts it like this. He says, 
Christ's suffering in this life and his atoning work led to reconciliation. And Paul's suffering led to that reconciliation being uniquely proclaimed. So this is the view that Paul was suffering in a special prophetic way to fulfill a special, unique uh, ministry of reconciliation that only he had. Now, I'm going to go ahead and admit that I don't really buy this explanation of the language in Colossians 1.24. And some of you might be asking, well, if that's the case, why do you even bring it up? Uh, well, uh, because many respected scholars and theologians and people who are way smarter than I am do believe it. And because I can't in good conscience say uh, that I am 100% sure that it's wrong. But I, I need to dig deeper into it first, which I'd also encourage you to do before you uh, reject it out of hand. But I will point, I'll point to two biblical reasons that I reject it really quickly, as well as one personal reason. And the personal reason that I reject this view is just that it, it just doesn't sit well in my spirit. Right? It just smells wrong to me, if you know what I mean. Uh, but that in itself, that in itself isn't a good enough reason to reject it. Right? I know myself too well uh, to follow my gut when it comes to theology and to spiritual things. We must follow the Word to develop our theology. So the biblical reasons I have for being suspicious of this view are, firstly, that the Scriptures plainly teach that suffering for Christ is an unavoidable, unavoidable excuse me, element of the Christian life in general. Right, truly following Christ will bring about a measure of suffering for all who take that path. We're all called to suffer. So there has to be a sense in which God has ordained a certain measure of suffering that he intends to be filled up by his body, by all of us, not just Paul. Right, by all of his people. Even the scholars who take this this view that I just described that Paul suffered for some unique and special purpose, uh, even the scholars who take that view admit that this is the case, right? That all believers are called to suffer. Um, and we can know this, right? We can know this for sure because our Lord himself tells us. Uh, Jesus said, whoever wishes to follow after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever will not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he cannot be my disciple. Right? That's what Jesus says. So the cross here is an instrument of suffering and death. And Jesus said that all who wish to follow him and learn from him must be willing to die to their own fleshly lusts, ambitions, and comfort. So the true believer, every true believer, will be willing to suffer for the truth, just as Christ did, even to the point of death. So if you want me to believe that Paul's suffering has some special uh, prophecy-fulfilling purpose that separates it from that of all other believers, then I'm going to need to see some pretty compelling biblical evidence for that claim, and I haven't seen it yet. Um, and this is not to say, this is not to say that we shouldn't recognize that Paul indeed did suffer great affliction for the cause of the gospel, even in extraordinary ways. Right? We know, we know he did. We know Paul suffered greatly, stoned, flogged, imprisoned. If, if you've ever seen uh, that scene in the Passion of the Christ movie where Jesus was flogged by the Romans. Right, the, probably one of the most gruesome scenes in the movie, where his back is just laid open to the extent that you can see his bones. His bones are exposed. You remember that scene? That happened to Paul five times. Five times. Uh, so he is certainly an extraordinary example of one who took up his cross and died to himself. His writings are full of the testimony of his own great suffering. But we know this is true, and, and though it's true that not all of us will be called to suffer to the extent that Paul did, that's not the point. But the point is that Paul's suffering, even though it was extraordinary in scope and intensity, it wasn't unique in its purpose. It wasn't unique in its purpose. Paul's cross may have been heavier than ours, but we're all called to carry our cross for the same purpose, and that's to follow Christ in proclaiming the truth of his gospel. If we do that, uh, we'll follow him in his suffering as well. You don't get one without the other. So the second 
uh, biblical reason that I have that seems to go against this idea of Paul being uniquely uh, called to suffer in the ministry of reconciliation. The very verses that I brought up earlier that are used to support this view, uh, when we look at them a little more closely, it seems to actually deny the view. So the verse here in 2 Corinthians uh, that used to say that, Paul, that that is used to say that Paul alone was entrusted and called to the ministry of reconciliation actually says otherwise. Right? So let's look again at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Paul says here that Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, and that he is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Not me, Paul, alone, right? But us. And we see the same thing in the argument uh, that uh, Christ's ministry and Paul's ministry are aligned as far as the presentation of believers before God goes. It was back in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, the view says that Paul is uniquely identified with Christ in his work of presenting. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that Christ uh, that, that Christ would present us holy and blameless. And in verse 28, Paul says that he, that Paul would present every man complete in Christ. This is what they say. This is supposed to be an argument that Paul's ministry and therefore his afflictions are somehow a unique extension of Christ. But again, if we take a closer look at verse 28, Colossians 1, 28, Paul says that we proclaim him and admonish and teach every man so that we may present them complete in Christ. I'm not trying to be confusing here. I'm just trying to do my due diligence here in explaining these separate views to you um, so you can decide for yourself. But when I was looking at this, and I'm reading this commentary, and he's like, Paul was uniquely given the ministry of reconciliation. And then he points me to a scripture where Paul says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And no, I looked everywhere, and there's nowhere an explanation of why it's plural there. If what he's, you know, So anyway, that's my biblical uh, reasons for rejecting um, this verse. So, and we could have a discussion about who exactly the we are in these verses, but that carries us a little, a little further away from the discussion at hand. So, um, I've spent a fair amount of time here talking about what I think this verse doesn't mean. And again, you might be thinking, why are you wasting our time? Uh, well, I think discussions like this are valuable, right? Just like I just said, um, I, want every, I want us to have all the information, right? Uh, you haven't done your due diligence in examining the Word until you've explored it from all angles, right? And tested it and tried to understand it in the light of all of the rest of Scripture. Um, this is part of, of what it means to rightly divide the Word of truth. When you're, when you're making a case or when you're trying to decide what you believe about uh, something in the Word. It can only strengthen your case and your belief to have a full and honest understanding of, of all the opposing ideas as well, right? So it's never a waste of time to explore each idea as long as we hold each idea to the standard of harmony with the rest of the Word, right? So um, now, the second school of explanations given for this passage. Um, can, can we put Colossians 1.24 back up on the screen? Okay, so this other school, this other school is where I believe that we can begin to get to the truth of what Paul is actually saying in this verse. Right? And so this school says that what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which Paul says that he was doing his share in filling up, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions are to be filled up not by Paul alone, but by all believers. By all believers. Paul was indeed filling up a God-ordained measure of suffering that remained to complete Christ's afflictions, but Paul, he was simply doing his share. He was doing his part, and we are all to do our share and our part as well. So within this school of possible interpretation of verse 24, there are a lot of different kind of nuances and ways to approach it ways of thinking about it when it comes to exactly how this works out, right? Different, different adherents of, of this, this kind of view believe different things about it, and I'm not going to go over them all, but they all have in common the idea that because we as the church, the true church or true believers are called the body of Christ, we're identified as the body of Christ, then we actually, we, 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 we represent him. We represent him or continue 
in some way his ministry here on earth. Right? And because this is true, because this is true, our suffering for his truth and his name is counted as his suffering. So because our suffering is also Christ's suffering, and because God has ordained that both his son and his son's body, the church, are to endure a certain amount of suffering in this life, then when his people suffer for the gospel, we are actually, we're, we're filling up or completing the sufferings of Christ in our flesh, just as Paul says he was doing here. So like I, I said, there, there are a lot of different ways, some of them very interesting and very compelling as far as uh, you know, how this works itself out. Um, but I'm not going to go there. So, so when Paul says uh, that he is doing his share on behalf of Christ's body and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he means that he's experiencing the afflictions that God had allotted to him personally, but every other true believer has their share as well. And when every believer, when every believer, all of God's people have endured the suffering allotted to them by God, right? When, when all of God's chosen people have, have endured the suffering in this life that he's called them to endure, all that was lacking in Christ's afflictions will be filled up and suffering will be no more. Suffering will end. This is when Christ will return and will enter uh, the eternal state of heaven on earth in the presence of our Lord. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain or suffering. Because those things will have passed away. That's Revelation 21. Uh, now, the biblical support for this view is found in the many, many, many passages of Scripture, some of which we've already been over that speak of the trials and the tribulations and the persecutions and the sufferings that the people of God are called to endure on behalf of Christ. Right? So this is what I mentioned earlier. Right? The common thread that runs through all of these possible interpretations of verse 24 is that believers are called to suffer. Believers are called to suffer, whether Paul or you or me. But I want to stop here again and make and make another point, right? There, there are different kinds of suffering. Right? People suffer for different reasons, and both believers and unbelievers will suffer simply just as a consequence of being born into the, a sinful, fallen world, right? So when we think of the suffering and affliction that Paul is speaking of here in this verse, we need to understand that he has a specific type of affliction in mind, right? Just as Christ did. When he asked us to take up our cross, taking up your cross doesn't mean simply experiencing the hardship that is common to all creatures, right? It doesn't mean just enduring life in a world where there's sickness and death and, and where hard work is necessary. The, 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 the suffering that we're talking about here, it, it doesn't include stubbing your toe, right? Or uh, coming up short on your bills this month. That's not what we're talking about. Right, the book of 1 Peter has uh, much to say about suffering. That is a major theme of that book. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, we read this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Right? And this is what Paul says in Colossians 1.24, that he rejoices in his suffering because his suffering glorifies his master. And Christ is worthy of our suffering. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. Now, there are different kinds of suffering. There's a popular quote out there floating around that says, everything happens for a reason, 
Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. Right? The suffering that we've been talking about is not that type of suffering. Okay? It's not suffering the consequences of sin in this life or any other type of afflictions that are common to all men. The suffering and affliction that Christ and Paul and Peter were speaking of in these verses uh, that we've looked at so far are specifically related to the proclamation of the gospel. It's suffering for the proclamation of the gospel, being reviled for the name of Christ. That's the suffering that we're talking about here. That's the suffering that remains to be filled up by his people. It's, it's suffering affliction for the gospel. So as we discussed earlier, just like Paul, just like Paul, all of us are called to be ministers of the gospel, right? We've established that, right? No argument there. And if we are obedient to Christ in this ministry, then we will experience suffering. We will experience suffering, just like Paul did. He, he ties the two together here uh, between verse 23 and verse 24. He says, I have been made a minister of the gospel, therefore I suffer. I have been made a minister of the gospel, now I rejoice in my suffering. That's the nature of true gospel ministry. It's an unavoidable consequence of taking up your cross and following your master. But Jesus said himself in John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, remember, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The gospel ministry that Christ has called all of his people to in some way will result in discomfort and persecution and suffering. People will hate you. Right? If you're doing it right, then you will be hated by the world. You will. So, I'll ask you, all of you, what is your gospel ministry? What's your gospel ministry? In what way have you opened yourself up to bearing the reproach that comes from standing firmly and boldly on the gospel of Christ? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Do you love his gospel? Do you believe that it's the power of salvation to all those who believe? Do you love your neighbor as Christ commanded you? Do you? If you can't answer yes to all three of those questions, then it's likely that you need to repent and believe the gospel yourself. But if you did answer yes to those questions, then point me to your enemies. Point me to your enemies. Who hates you because of your faithfulness to the gospel? What reproach have you borne? Most professing Christians in America today seem to take great pride in, in not having any enemies. Right? Because we've been taught that being a good Christian really just comes down to being really nice to everybody and making people love us. Right? We think being a Christian means trying to be everybody's best friend. And this is so backwards from everything we've just read, from all that we read concerning the Christian walk in the Bible. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's what the scriptures say. Now, the world shouldn't hate you because you're a jerk, okay? Um, and I, that's something I've had to repent of. Right? But it should hate you because you consistently confront it with the gospel of the one it hates. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you, if you're doing it right. 
When's the last time that you've opened yourself up to the discomfort that can come from having an awkward conversation about the gospel with a lost friend or family member? Right? Have you opened yourself up to being thought of as foolish or crazy by speaking this way with a stranger? Have you ever risked being labeled as judgmental or bigoted because you took a stand on the exclusivity of Christ and called people to repent of their most beloved sins? I mean, have you? I'm not pointing fingers. Maybe you have. I hope you have. I'm just asking you to think about it. What have you done? I confess, I confess before you uh, here, church, that I have been ashamed. I have been ashamed many times of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have. I have. I pray the Lord forgives me. And I pray for you. I, I pray that he'll give us the courage and the strength to not be ashamed of him before men. So that in the day of judgment, he won't be ashamed of us. You know, it should be our prayer that he'll remove the fear of man from me and increase my fear of him so that I will be faithful in my gospel ministry that the Lord has given me. I need to open myself up to being reviled for the name of Christ. I do. We all do. We're not all called to die, literally, right, for Christ. Not all of us. But we are living in a world and in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile toward the truth of the gospel. And for some of us, this call uh, to die to self might simply mean having people talk about us in ugly ways behind our backs. Right? Are you willing to bear that reproach for Christ? Can you stand that idea? But for some, it might mean uh, being called names or cursed at. And it may even be that some of us could have things like thrown at us or to be otherwise physically assaulted. Those things happen, right? We might be imprisoned. And for some of us, it might even be that we are called to die a martyr's death. Maybe. And if we do these things, if we do these things, we will each be filling up the measure of suffering that Christ has given us to suffer for his name. And we will be in good company with Paul and Peter and John and all the apostles and Christ himself, who all suffered physical persecution for the gospel. And the countless, countless men and women who have courageously given themselves over to suffer, sometimes in terrible and unthinkable ways, so many of our brothers and sisters have endured horrible torture, torture and violence for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And for our sake. And for our sake. That's what Paul says in, in verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul and his fellow sufferers endured their afflictions out of love for Christ and his church. And his church. The reason that you have that Bible in your hands today, if you have one, or on that screen today, the reason... The reason that you have heard and believed the gospel today, the reason that you heard the good news that saved you from an eternity in hell is because your brothers and sisters throughout the ages have been willing to endure imprisonment, torture, and death for your sake. For your sake, because they took up their crosses and followed Christ. And they were not ashamed of him and his gospel as we so often are. And we, we enjoy such benefits, such benefits because of their sacrifice. But so many of us aren't willing to lift our voices or to even have a conversation for the benefit of our lost loved ones. And again, I'm confessing my own sin here. So even today, even today, right now, faithful men and women are uh, being attacked, imprisoned, and killed because they truly believe Jesus when he said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. 
For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and in the same way they persecuted him, our Lord. So they go. They go, and they are dying by the thousands around the world right now. The, the, the persecution, any persecution that you or I might have to endure in this country, even now, as bad as things have gotten, as hostile to the truth as our culture has become, is nothing. Any persecution we might have to endure is absolutely nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are facing. Right? In Pakistan. Rape and torture. Whole, whole villages full of people murdered because they chose to follow Christ. Our crosses that we're being asked to bear are, are light compared to theirs. But we still refuse to bear them. We still won't pick them up. I mean, they're, 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 we are often, so often, so unwilling to inconvenience ourselves in any way for the sake of our Lord and for the lost people around us. We value our comfort too much to do anything to jeopardize it. And we value our pride, our pride too much to ever risk sullying our worldly reputations by confronting lost people with the gospel of Christ. I got a certain image I'm trying to uphold. These things are often more important to us than the souls of our neighbors or obedience to our master. How idolatrous, how idolatrous I can be. Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 15 through 18. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Oh, Abba, doesn't our modern church culture love this verse? I love this verse. You know, we should cry out, Abba, Father. We should exult in this. But the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Even better, even better, I'm a child of the one true king. I'm an heir. I'm an heir with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Oh. Oh. You know, how many of the passionate worshipers out there this morning are crying out to, 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 to Abba, to Daddy God, Read that far into the verse. You know, what part sticks with people? How many of those rejoicing in their adoption and sonship are also rejoicing in their suffering? How many of us believe the word and what it says about this life being a vapor? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed. This is why we go. This is why we go. Paul says elsewhere that this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul's momentary and light afflictions, scourgings, beatings, stoned to death, imprisoned, momentary and light afflictions. But he views them this way, and he endures them joyfully because he looks forward to the eternal weight of glory. This is why we can rejoice when we're counted worthy to suffer on behalf of Christ and his gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe what the Word says? Do you believe that suffering for the gospel of Christ, for your neighbor and for your king, produces for us and for them an eternal weight of glory? Do you believe it? 
Well, then go. Go and suffer. Go and suffer for the sake of the world and the sake of your master. Go. Shine the light of the gospel. I pray we will. Let's pray. Father God, oh, this is a difficult word. Father, so often these things that we read, we can separate ourselves from them, Lord. We can insulate ourselves from the truth of your word. We'll be touched by the parts that, that we love, Lord. They'll make us feel good. And we'll read over the difficult parts. Lord, I pray this morning, Father, that you will touch us with this word in a way that changes us. Father, if we can rejoice that you are our, our Abba, Lord, and that we are heirs of glory with Christ, then, Father, we should, we should want to see others come into your kingdom, come into your family, that they might rejoice as well. Lord, I pray that you'll make us more like Jesus, Father. Make us more like Jesus, Lord, that, that we'll be willing to be obedient and to endure whatever suffering, whatever suffering you might have in store for us, because we recognize that the, the outcome is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Father, burn that into my mind, into my heart today, and all of us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.